All right, I'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day that we can gather together and participate in the means of grace once again, sit under your word and to learn more about you. We do pray, Lord, as we look at these words from the book of Revelation and from the rest of Scripture, that we would be convinced that living for you and your kingdom is the right thing to do and that we'd be those who flee from Babylon, that we wouldn't live for the fleeting pleasures of sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I just want to remind everyone, last week we didn't finish our study. So if you have your notes from last week, we're going to continue on there. And if you don't have your notes from last week, Christy does have some copies. And so just raise your hand if you need a sheet or perhaps you weren't here last week. Now, as she's passing those out, I just saw Barb Gretsch needs one over there. Good. That's all right. Let's make sure everyone has one. As we began, I want to remind you last week we were talking about the judgment of religious Babylon, or excuse me, not religious Babylon, but economic Babylon. Religious Babylon was dealt with in Revelation 17. Well, now in Revelation 18, we're looking at how God is going to overthrow economic Babylon. And we left off on this slide, and I want to remind you in Revelation 18.3, these were the sins that Babylon was engaged in, passion and immorality and sensuality. And we talked about the fact that, think about the link between spiritual harlotry, the fact that people have other gods than the true God, leads to physical harlotry, as it were. That is, people have other partners other than one spouse. Okay, there's a connection between the two. And so Babylon lives just for itself. All the people live to gratify their natures. And so we talked about how this ultimately is unsustainable. The left today in America likes to talk about sustainability when it comes to the environment. But what we learned last time is that ultimately what's unsustainable is life without God. This world will come to an end. There is judgment coming. And even if you're still, or excuse me, if you don't live till the time where Christ comes, everyone dies. Hebrews 9.27, it says it's appointed once for man to die. After that comes judgment. So life without God is ultimately what's unsustainable. Now, the next slide, we didn't come to this yet, is where we see God calling his people out of Babylon. Revelation 18, 4 through 5. John says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Now, dear ones, notice in the red, the call by God, and it's probably a messenger again from the heavenly realm, says, come out of her, my people. And I want you to think of this calling out of Babylon as twofold. Number one, it really is a calling out of the people of God from a geographical location. Babylon really will be headquartered along the Euphrates. But number two, it's more than that. It's more than simply coming out of the city. It's also not living in sin like those in Babylon do. Now, I want to remind you that this was something that happened earlier in Israel's history where God called his people out of Babylon. Does anybody remember when that happened? Remember there was a 586 B.C. destruction of Jerusalem? The Israelites are brought into Babylonian captivity for how many years? For, for 70 years. But after that 70 years was over, the risk was that the people would like Babylon more than they would like to live for God and return to their homeland. And so we saw, for example, Jeremiah so many years ago call the people of God to flee from Babylon then. So think about Jeremiah is the near, Revelation is the far, but the connection is, are you content with living in Babylon? It's, it's the same in both times. Notice what Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 50, verse 8, flee from the midst of Babylon and go out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be as male goats before the flock. The male goats would be the leaders. So here in Jeremiah's day, he is saying to the people of God, when the time happens when you're to go home and leave Babylon and return to your mainland, your homeland, you're to do that rather than revel in the pleasures of Babylon. But remember during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, what happened? A lot of Israelites would rather stay in Babylon, wouldn't they? So, dear brothers and sisters, there's always a temptation for the people of God to live in Babylon, to enjoy it, and to stay there, and to partake in the sins of Babylon. Now, again, 
what's interesting in the book of Revelation in the 70th week of Daniel, there's a geographical location to Babylon. Today there isn't. Today Babylon, in a sense, if you think of it spiritually, is just living like a pagan. There's nothing geographically that you can flee from. But in the 70th week of Daniel, that's going to change. There's going to be a headquarters to all of this harlotry and idolatry. And it will, again, be a literal city located along the Euphrates. The other thing I want to point out is notice here in verse 5, the sins have piled up as high as heaven. Remember, God only tolerates so much. I always remember, reminds me of the line from Popeye. Remember, he'd always say, I can't stands no more. And I think about that's kind of what God is saying, isn't he? There's only so much sin that he will tolerate, and it reaches his nostrils, so to speak, and then he judges. So throughout the Bible, there's a theme that you'll see. There's a filling up of sin. There's a filling up of repentance. Um, Let me give you an example. Remember back in Genesis 15, God gives the promise to Abraham what was going to happen to Israel. And he says, you are going to be taken into captivity. He's talking about going to Egypt for 400 years. And he says, until the time of the Amorites, their sins are fulfilled. So there was a filling up of the sins of the Amorites. Think about in Acts chapter 3. Peter says, repent so that God may send to you Jesus Christ from heaven. There's a total number of those who will repent, and one day that's filled up, and God will send his son. Think about in uh, Colossians 1.24, Paul says he did his share in filling up what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Now, in Colossians 1.24, does that mean there was something, something lacking in Jesus' atoning work on the cross? No. The afflictions of Christ has to do with the total number of afflictions or sufferings that the people of God will go through. And at one day, that will be piled up. It will reach its limit. And again, God sends forth his son. So my point in saying all these things is there's a time where there's going to be a limit and we don't know when that is. It could be tomorrow morning. There's a limit in how much evil God will tolerate. All of those who were to repent, repented. And the Lord Jesus comes. We don't know when these things will happen. We don't know, but God does. He has it all ordained. And so that should be a reminder to us that God will not tolerate sin forever. Back in the Fick Auditorium, I remember Bob gave a message on Bible study in Sunday school, and remember how he'd mentioned the judgments that came at the flood and the judgments that came, for example, on Sodom and Gomorrah? He referred to those as exemplary judgments. And the significance of that is just because right now people get away with living a homosexual lifestyle or living a sinful life, and they're not immediately judged like they were at Sodom and Gomorrah, is not proof that somehow God is now pleased with it whereas once before he was not. Those exemplary judgments are given to us in history to show that, yes, one day God will judge it again. And so those exemplary judgments always stand as a reminder that God will reach his limit and he won't stand no more one day. Here you see it going to play out. Revelation 18, the sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. He won't stand anymore. He will judge it. Now, I want to talk about fleeing from Babylon in our particular age. Obviously, there's not a literal Babylon that's built along the Euphrates. So what does it mean for us to flee Babylon? And I'm going to have Bob comment on this in a minute. I want you to think, first of all, about how we are not called to the wilderness. Now, I'm going to have Bob comment on this. You and I as believers are not called to the wilderness to get away from Babylon. Isn't it interesting? We're called to the assembly of believers. Remember Hebrews 10.25, we're not to forsake the assembling together as some are prone to do. Why? Well, Bob, why don't you explain to everyone what is the problem with trying to flee from Babylon in sin by just getting away from society and going into the wilderness like the desert fathers did? Yes. Quote, unquote, fathers. Yes. When I was uh, first in Bible college in the early 70s, my favorite teacher... Uh, Reverend Smith offered a summer class called Historical Theology, and we were studying some of the earliest writings of the church. Yeah. And I took that class just because I loved him as a teacher. I wanted to hear anything he had to say. Yeah. And so I bought these books. I still have them. 
you know, physical copies of their earliest writings. Well, one of the things we talked about were these uh, early, quote, fathers who went out into the wilderness. And one of the things that happened was that uh, some Christians decided Babylon was whatever city they were living in, Alexandria or wherever they may have been. And so if you want to be a good Christian, you got to get away from this city you got to get away from everything and go flee out into the wilderness and yeah. live in a cave. Yeah. So some people did that. Now, of course, we only have limited information about them because in the cave they weren't writing anything. But they were written about. But here's what happened to those people. They went insane and complained of being attacked all the time by demons. And... They became totally irrational. Yeah. Now, the idea that you could be a better Christian by <laughs> solitude and removal from society and removal even from other Christians is not taught in the Bible. Right. Okay. You can't get out of Babylon by going into a cave because if you're disobeying God, you're bringing spiritual Babylon with you. The only problem in the cave is you're there. <laughs> or I'm there. Exactly. And so I'm, and here's what really bugs me. Why doesn't anybody learn from history? This morning, I'm watching the news, and here comes an ad. shows the Roman church saying, come back home. Wow. Wow. Who gave us monasticism? Vows and oaths, which God forbids. Yes. That you're a better Christian if you're in solitude and silence. That you whip one another. That you have severe treatment of the body. That you don't need anybody. If you're a good Christian, you sit in silence somewhere. That has been disproven for centuries. It's not from God. It's not biblical. And it's not how you get out of Babylon. Now... What we need to learn is what the Bible says. Amen. And I thank God for those teachers. They were so good to me. They helped me yeah. as a new Christian. The only regret I have is I didn't listen to them more than I did. <laughs> Reverend Smith, if he's still on earth, may God bless him. Mm. Um, here's the deal. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 12? There are many members of the body with different functions, and we all need one another. Yeah, I know. It can... The hand say to the eye, or I don't know which. Yeah, the part. eye to say, yeah, exactly. I eye have no need of you. Right. The Bible calls that a sin. Rome calls it how you get out of Babylon. Amen. So if you're hearing me now, you decide. Do you want to know what God is pleased with? Read the Bible. Amen. If you want to know what Rome is pr- pleased with, you won't find it in the Bible. Well said. And Rome is religious Babylon personified, even though there's going to be a real Babylon. Exactly. So uh, we need each other. We're, none of us has the whole counsel of God within our own selves. So it's all in the Bible. None of us has all the gifts. None of us has all the talent. None of us has all of anything. But if we're with each other and we love each other and we care for each other and we pray for each other and we show up for each other, that's the body of Christ. Amen. Well, I'm going to preach on that, so I'll see my voice. Go ahead. <laughs> no, thank you, Bob. So what's so revolutionary, what Bob is showing us, is that the way to flee Babylon isn't by going into the wilderness. You can't flee it from going to a different geographical location. We're called to the assembling of believers. Why? It's within the assembly that the other means of grace are dispensed. The Word of God, the Lord's Supper, prayer. It's those things that happen where in the assembly of believers. So that's what we're called to. Now, let me remind you, remember back in Revelation 18, verse 2? Notice on the screen, what happened to Babylon when it was judged? Well, it's promised to be turned into the wilderness. The wilderness is the place of every bird that's unclean and of the demonic. That's what's going to happen to Babylon. Isn't it interesting? Babylon's turned into the wilderness. Remember we talked about Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement? There's two goats that are slain. One goat that is slain appeases the wrath of God within the veil. 
But the other goat, what happened? The people of God had the high priest confess all of their sins and place it upon the scapegoat, and it was led out where? To the wilderness, the place of the demonic. So the wilderness is never the place for the Christian. It is always seen as the place of the demonic. That's what's going to happen to Babylon. So here's my whole point in saying all this. The way that we flee from Babylon is not today by going to a different geographical location. In fact, notice what Jesus said. Here's Jesus' great high priestly prayer that he prays on behalf of all of us prior to his departure. He says to the Heavenly Father, John 17, 15 through 16, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Now, notice here two very important points. Number one, we remain in the same physical location. He says, do not take them out of the world. Now, granted, at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, the rapture, we will be taken out. But he's talking about life now during the church age. He doesn't ask the Father to remove us from the world. So he does ask, however, that we're kept from the power of the evil one. So notice, we don't remain in the same spiritual sphere. Does everyone see that? Okay, so think about it this way. In Colossians 1, 13 through 14... The moment of conversion, we were transported from the kingdom of the beloved, excuse me, from the domain of darkness. We are brought to the kingdom of the beloved son. We had a domain transfer, a spheric transfer. Okay, now, did you see it? Did you experience it physically? No, but it literally happened. You went from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. And it all happened by faith. Okay, now let's look at some passages that seem to support this idea. Turn your Bibles to 1 John 5, 18 through 19. This is something that Bob had hit on when he was teaching through 1 John. 1 John 5, 18 through 19. Notice it says here in 1 John 5, 18, We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him. But notice here this clause, he says, and the evil one does not touch him. Now stop there. The one who is born of God is not touched by the evil one, meaning that we will never enter into his sphere again. You are completely secure. Jesus said in John 10, 27 through 28, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Okay, no one can snatch them out of his hand. No one can snatch them out of the father's hand. He and the father are one. Does everybody remember that? So is there any chance for a believer to go back from, once they're saved, from the kingdom of the sun back to the kingdom of darkness? There's no chance. There's no chance of that. Now notice he goes on in verse 19. He says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the whole world, meaning all those who are in rebellion against God, they lie in the sphere of the evil one. You are now in the sphere of the beloved son. That's what's being prayed for by Jesus Christ, and you're never going to go back. So do you see, now it's not a geographical issue. The issue is that you have faith in the Son. Now, one other issue I want to raise here. Notice he says, keep them from the evil one. Notice the keep from in that underlined portion on the screen. That's the verb and preposition, tereo ek. It's the very same verb and preposition that's used in Revelation 3.10. The only other time in all of the New Testament that that verb and preposition are used together. Remember, it means to keep from, in Revelation 3.10, from the hour of trial. Now, this proves, let me just point this out, in John 17 here, when it says keep from the evil one, is any believer ever going to enter into the sphere of the evil one ever? No. no. Okay, let's take that idea. Are we ever going to, in Revelation 3.10, are we ever going to enter into the tr- hour of trial? No. Okay, all right, now the reason I'm saying that is Robert Gundry, a post-tribulationalist, said in Revelation 3.10 that keep from means that you're kept all the way through the the tribulation period and then you're brought out at the end. Well, are we kept in the... Just take that logic. Extend it here to John 17. When Jesus says keep them from the evil one, does that mean that we're in the sphere of Satan but he just keeps us and then brings us out at the end? No, we're brought out of the sphere, aren't we? into the kingdom of the beloved son. So I'm showing you is how to interpret Revelation 3.10, the preposition and the verb, in light of what's said in John 17. John 17 says it's preservation on the outside, 
Revelation 3.10 is saying the same thing, isn't it? It's not that you go into the time of trial. It's that you're preserved on the outside of it. Just as Jesus is saying here, you're preserved on the outside of Satan's sphere. You're kept in Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm sorry, Norm, go ahead. Uh, I'm wondering, how do we put that together with 1 Peter 5, 8, where it says, be, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Yeah, amen. We can always be tempted by Satan, and, and the demons can certainly tempt Christians. So what's interesting is Jesus here isn't saying, never let them be tempted, O Lord. If that's what Jesus prayed here in John 17, his prayer is not answered because right away we see Peter being tempted. In fact, he succumbs. So what we have prayed for here is something more grand. It's that even though a person like Peter, the apostle, who may stumble because he is sifted by Satan, Peter succumbed to that very verse. The, 1 Peter 5, 8, the, the Satan did sift him like wheat, Right? But did he ultimately leave the domain of the sun and go to the kingdom of darkness? No, he did not. So that's what's being prayed for here. So the point is we certainly can be tempted still to this day. But the prayer that Jesus is praying for is that we'd always remain secure in the domain of Christ. That even when we stumble, God would bring us back. In fact, remember at the end of John, Jesus reestablishes Peter. And he asks him three times, do you love me? Remember, how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. It was a powerful reminder that the Lord still had him in his grip, even if Peter had lost his grip on Christ. Yeah, so that's the distinction is temptation, yes, but never ever will we go from the domain of the sun back to the domain of darkness. Yeah, does that help? Okay, yeah, Lonnie. Yeah, I just want to make one last comment. Uh, yeah, concerning First John five eighteen, that uh, Christian then by that verse could not be put, uh, possessed by a devil, like this uh, was it Larson, Bob Larson, uh, you know, talks about and stuff like that. Yeah. Right, I, I agree. The, the, the idea is that once you and I have gone from one domain to the other, we're completely secure. And what God does is he can use the demonic realm for our good. Remember, even Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, he was given a thorn in the flesh from Satan. Do you remember that? And he prayed how many times that God would relieve it? And yet God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So we can affirm as believers in Christ is that if there's something bothering us, we can go to the throne of grace and we can say, Lord, I don't like the fact that I'm always under this temptation or this demon is doing that if, if we're being tempted by one. Uh, we can go to the throne of grace and ask for deliverance, but ultimately God is going to use his throne room, or excuse me, at his throne room, he's going to use the demonic realm and the angelic realm for our good, isn't he? Does that make sense? So think about it this way. All I have to do as a believer is go to the throne of grace. And we can be absolutely assured of Romans 8, 28, that he causes all things to work for the good for those who love him are called according to his purpose. So that means the angelic realm, the demonic realm, all of the cosmos, every scintilla of the universe, God ordains it and is going to use it to bring about your best interest for the believer, meaning one day a resurrection, a kingdom, etc. That's what we're to believe, is that he will use even the angelic realm for that purpose. Bob, do you want to comment on that? I'll be talking about that in my sermon a little bit. Good. Because I have an application from Job. But uh, maybe the simplest version is this. All true believers who have been transferred, redeemed, and so forth, forgiven, and so forth, 1 Corinthians 1, 13, 14, According to Hebrews 4.16, we have direct access to the very throne room of God, to the throne of grace. Now, once we've gone to the creator of the universe and we know he hears us, why would you go plead to a lesser court? Right. In other words, it'd be like the Supreme Court made a decision, and you thought, 
yeah, I think I'll go back. And you won? Right. No, I think I'll go back to Minnesota and see what they say. Right. <laughs> well, nobody would do that. Right. Now, the Bible portrays God as in control of his own universe. So if we are safe in Christ, what the devil and the demons in the spirit realm does or doesn't do is still under God's providential control. Right. Now, I've, re- I've been preparing for a year. This winter, I'm going to write an article about this mostly based on Luke 11, which a lot of people still seem confused about. But (laughs) it's not about the reality of these things. And it's not even about manifestations. It's about relationships. Are we under Christ or not? Are we in the domain of Christ or are we still in the domain of darkness? Amen. That's the one thing we need to know. So once we're in the domain of Christ, don't interact with Satan and demons. Always go to the throne of grace. That's you know, where the ru- ultimate ruler of the universe cares for us. Amen. There's nowhere else to go. In fact, I would even say doing anything less is dishonoring to God. Yeah, amen. Yeah. You know, a, a good analogy would be, um, think about the Titanic, it's sinking. Now, did it matter where you were sitting on the Titanic? Do you say, well, if I could just sit over here, maybe the water won't be quite as cold, right? Think about the manipulation of the demonic realm and demons. You have people that are always trying to cast out demons. It's just simply maneuvering the different deck chairs on the Titanic. What you need is a change of location. You need to go from the Titanic to the lifeboat. The Titanic is the world. It's sinking. It's, it's in the power of the evil one. It's going to hell. It's going to perdition. It's going to destruction. The lifeboat is Christ. At the moment of conversion, the moment that you trusted upon Jesus, you went from the Titanic to the lifeboat. But there are Christian, Christians out there who supposedly are going to remove demons and they're going to try to maneuver the demonic realm, all they're doing is maneuvering the deck chairs on the Titanic. When in fact God is in charge of it, what you need is a domain transfer to go from the Titanic to the lifeboat. Once you're in the lifeboat, you're saved. There's no ever going back to the Titanic again. That's what Bob has been showing us in the two-domain theology. He's exactly right. That's the key to understanding 1 John. 1 John, there's only two groups. Those who are in lawlessness... And those who are remaining in Christ, abiding in Christ, those who are staying put. It's only two groups. And so the way to flee from Babylon, dear ones, is to be found in Christ. Yes, we flee from the sinful acts and deeds, but here and now, it's not a geographical change. You can't flee Minneapolis and go to Duluth and say, I left Babylon. Or you can't go out into the wilderness in Wyoming and say, well, I've left Babylon. Why? Because you'll still bring your sin nature there. A lot of people will say, well, Jesus Christ went to the wilderness. Yes, but he didn't bring us in nature. When he went to the wilderness, he brought a sinless perfection that you and I don't have. Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted because he's the perfect man that none of us ever were. Israel, can we say that we're any better than corporate Israel? Israel was brought into the wilderness for 40 years. They failed miserably. Jesus is brought into the wilderness for 40 days, and he succeeds. Why? He's the faithful son. So the way to flee from Babylon is to be found in Christ. That's what Bob and I have been trying to do in our radio programs and just to say, no, we need a domain transfer. We don't need to be just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. So, dear ones, that's how we flee from Babylon. You flee from it by turning from sin, turning to Christ, but it's not a geographical change. Don't fall into this idea that if you could just get away from it all in the wilderness, you're going to be more holy. No, we're called to the assembly and to the means of grace not to the wilderness. Okay. Now, with that, let's go to see how Babylon's... Oh, I'm sorry. We had a... Uh, Luann. Just, and you guys, I think, really greatly just kind of answered this, but I'm trying to walk and chew gum at the same time because, you know, we, t- we have learned the doctrine of election and yeah. how, for, um, in, how that works is God is going to be hands-on with his elect. Yeah. So he's going to be active in our lives. And then just like Norm brought up with First um, Peter, the devil prowls around seeking whom he may devour. So the devil's seeking for the elect also. 
You know, sure. so you have both, you know, um, hands on with the elect. Although, just like um, uh, Job, the Lord is. I mean, He's the one who He's our advocate. He's the one on our side. Yeah. So we don't have to even care that the devil's prowling around. If that makes you know, like you're I exactly said, I, right. I mean, I'm Lord. trying to think this out loud as I'm talking about it. But, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, so and, yeah. Let's go to, jo- I know Bob will mention it today, Job 1, you have the divine council, the angelic realm is before the throne room, and here Satan demands to sift someone, and God says, well, I'd be considered my servant Job. And so here it's ordained by God that this would happen, yet it actually ends up being for the good of Job. He ends up learning about who God is in a much greater way than he would have ever in, in the past. Now, does he suffer terribly? Oh, Yes. But is he secure? Does he belong to God? Does that ever change? No. And that's what we have to affirm in our lives is that no matter what happens, and it's not easy. It's, it's, it's easy to give lip service to it. I know that. Um, you know, sometimes we sing that song, um, it, it is well with my soul. You know, that was written by a man who lost his whole family in a ship uh, sinking. I, I, that's what I understand. Well, I think about, could I say that? Now, it would have to be God's grace that I do, but I pray that I would as well. But those are the circumstances of life where we have to just hold on to the promises of God. It is sufficient to say we have eternal life, we have a resurrection and a kingdom to come. And that answers all of the suffering here and now. But yes, God will use those things for our good. And so we can absolutely rest in that. Whatever is happening, we can go to the throne of grace and trust that it's all by him and for our good. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Okay. Well, I'll keep going here. Now we see Babylon's glory is overthrown. Remember, they're going to try to glory in themselves rather than God. Revelation 18, 6 through 7, God says, Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am not a widow, and will never see mourning. Now, dear ones, notice here right away, you have a payback. Notice in verse 6, he says, pay her back even as she has paid, and give her double according to her deeds. What's very interesting is God is keeping track of the sins of the unregenerate, and he will give them retribution commensurate with what they did. The passage that came to my mind as we're reading this is the passage in Romans 2.5. Remember there... Paul warns about the unregenerate storing up wrath for the day of wrath. What's interesting is this idea of storing up wrath has to do with this idea of accruing guilt before God. But it also perhaps entails not just accruing guilt, but accruing it in an exponential way. How many here have ever put money in a bank and gotten interest? I don't even remember the days where you could actually gain interest on your money. (laughs) It's never happened in my adult life. We've always had almost a zero uh, interest rate. But anyway, some of you maybe remember a time when you actually got interest on your money. The unregenerate will get interest on their sin. That's what's being stated here. He's going to pay back double according to what they had done. In fact, notice this reference to the cup. The cup which she has mixed, that's Babylon. Now, stop there. This cup reminds us of Revelation 14, 8, where Babylon had enticed the whole world to drink of the cup of idolatry. In other words, to drink of a cup in which they would join in the rebellion against God. Well, now what God is saying is he's going to take this cup of rebellion and he's going to turn it into a cup of wrath. So oftentimes you see in the Old Testament... God talks about his enemies and how he will give them the cup of his wrath. In fact, turn your Bibles to Isaiah 51, 17. I want you to see that very fact from the Old Testament. Isaiah 51, 17, we're going to be looking how Israel was in rebellion against God, and God was going to give them a cup of his wrath. Isaiah 51, 17. Isaiah 51, 17. The prophet Isaiah says, Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger. Literally, you could say the cup of his wrath. The chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. Okay, now stop there. Israel was in rebellion against God because they went after other gods. They fell into idolatry. 
what's going to happen in the 70th week of Daniel, there's, there's going to be a reversal. The judgment that used to come upon Israel is now going to come upon the nations, and Israel is going to be saved from idolatry. The nations will be given over to idolatry, and they will be given over to drinking from the wrath of God, the cup of wrath. Now, I want you to think about how you and I have been spared from God's wrath. Remember Jesus in Mark 14, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And remember he says, Lord, if it be your will, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So Jesus in the garden, remember the first garden you had Adam who had perfection. And he said, not your will, God, but mine be done. Jesus, the second Adam, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. What's Gethsemane mean? It means olive press. This isn't a garden of perfection. This is a garden where he is pressed out by the weight of sin in the world. And yet Jesus in that garden says, not my will, but thine be done. To the point where he's willing to take upon himself the cup of wrath on our behalf. Dear ones, the only reason you and I aren't going to be participating in taking the cup of wrath is because Jesus took the cup of wrath for us. Yes, Eric. Uh, I don't know if I'm reading in too much here, but I, I compare the cup here to the cup, okay, in the, in the tr traditional ancient Hebrew marriage traditions, you know, where the, the, the bride and the groom would drink a cup yeah. when, they, when, they, when they formed the covenant of marriage. Okay, so we have a choice of either drinking the cup of the covenant, so we're the bride, and, we, and our, as a bride we wait faithfully for Jesus. Amen. Or if you don't drink of that cup, you're part of the demonic, and, and you, have, you will drink of the cup of wrath. Amen. Because of the, we, that those people will have glorified themselves. We're to be faithful. The, unfa the, the, the others, the, the demonic, they glorify themselves. Amen. Okay? Well said, Eric. Well said. Exactly right. I, uh, in fact, we're going to be partaking in the Lord's Supper today together. And I want you to think about the cup that we partake in at the Lord's Supper is the cup of redemption, as it was known. Remember, there was four cups at the Passover. Um, in the four cups of the Passover, they come from what God had promised Israel in Exodus 6, verses 6 through 7. So the four cups of the Passover, the first was sanctification, that God would set apart his people. The second cup was the cup of deliverance, that he would deliver them. These come from words actually in Exodus 6, 6 through 7. The third cup is the cup that would be drunk immediately after supper, at least after the bread was partaken of. Now that cup was the cup of redemption. And more than likely, that's the cup that's being referred to in our institution of the Lord's Supper, where Paul recounts in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, after supper, he took the cup saying, this is my blood of the new covenant, you know, shed for you. So that cup, the cup of redemption, is something that you and I are partakers in. And it's very much like what you suggested. It's like that marriage covenant that God made with, or excuse me, that a man would make with his wife, where they were offering each other's life. You take my life, I give you mine. I take yours, you have mine. That sort of idea, right? So yeah, the cup of redemption is something that we're partaking. Now, there's a final cup that's coming in the Passover. The fourth cup is the cup of consummation. Well, notice that was not partaken of, but Jesus says, I will not drink of the wine until I drink it anew with you. Where? In my Father's kingdom. And so that awaits the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's kind of the imagery there. So because you and I are partakers of the Lord's cup, the cup of redemption, we don't get the cup of wrath. That's a connection you can make today as you partake in the Lord's Supper. I think it's really there in the scriptures. Yeah, Christy. Um, I just wanted to find out if what you're describing about the two um, categories, the two cups, would that support the, doc the limited atonement um, doctrine or teaching? Um, well, that Christ died, yeah. his, his cup, the wrath, applies to believers. It's not poured out for all. Oh, yeah, well Others. said. I see what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. The doctrine of limited atonement is certainly taught in Scripture. He doesn't die for the sake of the entire world in the sense of every single human being. The atonement that he provides with his shed blood is exclusively for believers, isn't it? So think about it this way. When Christ sheds his blood and provides atonement, if everyone has atonement, 
well, then there's no need for the wrath of God because everyone's been atoned for. So yes, there is limited atonement. It's only for those who believe. And obviously it's only for, therefore, the elect. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah, very good. Any, any other comments or questions? All right. Now, I want you to see also, I think it's something that we should come away with from this, is that we should be content with the fact that God repays, not us. Remember in the book of Romans, we're going to come to this section, Romans 12, verse 19, God says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. He says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So this is a passage that should remind us of that, that one day God is going to take vengeance upon our enemies, that it's not our job to do it. Our job as believers is to forgive those who offend, to pray for our enemies, to love those who are opposed even to the gospel. Now, as I say that, that doesn't mean that we're pacifists. We believe that the government is ordained by God to restrain evil. Paul will say in Romans 13, 4, that they do not bear the sword in vain, meaning they can use it. So if you're a Christian and you have a true biblical doctrine, you shouldn't believe in pacifism. No, the government has been ordained to restrain evil by using the sword. However, you and I are not to take the sword as the church and try to bring about the kingdom and mete out vengeance on the enemies of God. We saw that happen, for example, at the time of the Crusades where the church took upon the role of the government and they were doing things that God had not ordained. Okay, does that make sense? So that's another little lesson I wanted to show you. Now, I want you to see the sins here again. Verse 7 of Babylon, they glorified themselves. What does that remind you of? Well, the first tower of Babel, what did the people build the tower of Babel for? To make a name for themselves. They were trying to glorify themselves in the beginning and they're going to do it again at the end. Again, they live sensuously. That has to do with this idea of sexual immorality. Those who have multiple gods or are idolaters or harlots spiritually end up becoming harlots physically as well. All right. Now, the last thing I want to point out is maybe you wondered, where in the world does this I sit as a queen and am not a widow? Does everyone see that in all caps? That's a quotation from Isaiah 47. Now, let me just succinctly say, originally, that was Babylon's boast. Babylon's boast is that they were like a queen that would never mourn. In fact, turn your Bibles. Let's just read that so you know where this comes from. Isaiah 47, verses 5 through 7. Isaiah 47, verses 5 through 7. As you're turning there, remember, 404 verses... In the book of Revelation, 82% of all the verses contain allusions or quotations to the Old Testament. It's an amazing amount of Old Testament quotation. Isaiah 47, 5 through 7, it says, Sit silently and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. Stop there. What's the daughter of the Chaldeans? These would be people of Babylon, the citizens of Babylon. For you will no longer be called the queen of kingdoms. Verse 6, I was angry with my people... This is the Lord speaking. I profaned my heritage and gave them into your hand. You did not show mercy to them. On the aged, you made your yoke very heavy. You said, I will be a queen forever. These things you did not consider nor remember the outcome of them. So notice the boast. There must have been a proverbial saying in the day that Babylon was like a queen. And the boast is that they would never mourn, that their kingdom would last forever. Well, that same boast occurs in the 70th week of Daniel. At the end, the world is going to be without God in the kingdom that they have built, and they will boast that it's going to last forever. Didn't Hitler also boast that he was going to have a thousand-year Reich? I love the way they say it, Reich. It didn't work out, did it? And the same thing is true of Babylon. It will be thrown down. Now, the next slide, we see that God is the mightiest of all warriors. And that's a beautiful piece of news for us because why he can vanquish all of our enemies he can deliver us to the kingdom listen to what it goes on to say verse 8 for this reason in one day her plagues will come pestilence and mourning and famine and she will be burned with fire for the lord god who judges her is strong now let me just say in the beginning here in verse 8 notice the plagues the pestilence the mourning and the famine that's normally a result of warfare 
Back in the Old Testament, when God sent warfare upon Israel, you see this in Ezekiel 14, verses 19 through 21, God said he would send four things upon them. Sword, which is warfare. Now, what happens in warfare? Well, the land would be so destitute and so demolished that people couldn't provide for themselves. Well, that leads to famine, to pestilence, illness, because once you have a disease or if if you don't eat, you get a disease. They go hand in hand. So pestilence and famine, and then even wild beasts. Ezekiel 14.21 is a very important passage to have in your eschatology because four things came upon Israel from the hand of God, sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts, all because of his judgment. Well, remember in Revelation 6 at the fourth seal, you had sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts poured out upon the world. There was a reversal. What God used to do to Israel, he's going to do to the nations. And again, he's showing it to you right here, that God is going to put such warfare upon Babylon that no one will survive, virtually no one. They will be brought down completely. Notice here, it says, for the Lord, who, the Lord God who judges her is strong. That is wonderful news. We often don't think about the power of God as being good news, but it is. That's why it says, remember Proverbs 1, 7, that the fear of whom is the beginning of knowledge? The fear of Yahweh. Why should we fear Yahweh? Because he's the ultimate warrior. I know there was a wrestler called the ultimate warrior. I'm not trying to... God is really the ultimate warrior. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear he, that's man who can destroy the body, but fear him, that's God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We have to know who we should fear, and the one that you fear is the one you end up serving. And ultimately, it has to be God. Yeah. Uh, Romans, oh, I'm sorry. Romans 12, uh, 19. Yeah. Uh, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. As it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Yeah. Yeah, amen. I, I believe that burning coals reference is a negative one. I, the idea would be that you've given such evidence of the love of God that it, it serves as more judgment if they turn him down. I think that that would be the best reading of it, but um, some debate that. Some think it's a, it's a good thing, but uh, that's how I would understand it. But yeah, excellent. And again, the wrath of God is what we wait for. We don't pour it out as the church. We wait for God to do it. Yeah, amen. Yeah, Eric. Uh, it, uh, this is a question, a Hebrew question, I guess, really. Sure. So, um, the word fear, you know, the fear of God. We tend to think in our culture, fear as in cowering, as in, you know, standing before some unreasonable boss or someone who's a a tyrant or something. I think that the fear concept of fearing God is to hold him in awe. And and in other words, it's, and yes, we should fear him. He holds our lives in his hands. Yeah. But but I think it's it's just a more all-encompassing thing. I'm, I'm actually asking that. I think that the Hebrew yeah. yep. brings that out, I think, doesn't it? I, I think you're right. I, I think the issue with the fear of the Lord is it certainly has to do with reverence. But there is, as you mentioned, a real fear of him as well. Um, look at those Israelites who came to the mountain. They were in fear, you know. Now, we have a heavenly father. We can call him Abba, Father. We can call him Daddy. But this is one reason why I think God is referred to in the male pronoun. Now, let me just give you an example from um, Bill Cosby. I know he's had his issues, but just bear with me. Do you remember Bill Cosby talked about his dad? And he said his dad told him one day, he says, I brought you in this world. I'll take you out. And there was a fear that you have of your father that you don't have of your mother. Um, And I'm just saying it. There is a real fear. and, And I think that's part of the reason why you have a male pronoun for God. It's not that God has a sex per se. Jesus obviously did in his human body. But the point is that a father certainly can be loving, but there's also the discipline that comes from the hand of the father that every boy and girl should fear, as it were. And that's a genuine fear. You don't want to be paddled on the bottom by your father. And the same thing applies to our heavenly father. There is a genuine fear of what he can do. He's the mightiest of warriors. And so there should be a humility before this great and mighty God. Um, There should be certainly a reverence and an awe of him. 
But it does really entail a real fear to say, I do not want to be disciplined ultimately by this Holy One of Israel. Yeah, yep, very good. Brothers and sisters, it's wonderful news that we have a God that's going to deliver us. He's going to tear down Babylon. You and I are to flee from Babylon, not by going to a different geographical location, but by fleeing to Jesus Christ in faith. That's how we flee from Babylon. Now, I'm going to wrap this up. I want to bring you to another PowerPoint, and we're not going to finish it. I've got 10 minutes left, but I want to introduce it to you. I was, I've been working on something since April, as you'll see. <laughs> you'll see it on the screen here. And uh, the reason for this, eschatology made easy. Hey. <laughs> I've been working on this for a while, and my desire was I started realizing I'm using terms that not everyone is uh, picking up on. And as a, a good teacher should always try to say, hey, let's all be on the same page when it comes to the terminology that we're using. Any block to learning usually comes from a lack of common vocabulary. Okay? When I was a flight instructor, when I took a brand new student and I had to explain to them things about the aircraft without using technical terms so that I could bring the student along. Well, I want to kind of do that with eschatology as far as the terminology. For example, when I talk about the 70th week of Daniel, that perhaps goes over some people's head just because you don't have the vocabulary down. I want to show you where these terms come from. And so there's three terms that I think are very important for us to understand if we're going to understand eschatology. And I want to begin on this first slide. I'll just get through this first slide. But I want to show you how these three terms in the Bible relate to one another. The three important terms are the day of the Lord. The second one is the parousia. In your English Bible, it'll be rendered as coming. It's the technical term for the coming of Christ. The third term is Daniel's 70th week, which I often refer to as the last seven years that occur on the planet before the Messianic age is reigning from from Jerusalem, or the Messiah is reigning from Jerusalem. So when I talk about the 70th week of Daniel, you'll oftentimes see me come up with this diagram. So my diagram here, I'm going to put it my laser pointer. Think of this blue line. You and I are living somewhere during the church age, but one day the 70th week breaks out. This is a seven-year period. Oops, there we go, Daniel's 70th week. Seven years from this point to this point. The midpoint is obviously the three-and-a-half-year mark where the Great Tribulation occurs, okay? Now, Daniel's 70th week is absolutely essential for us to understand. It's the last seven years, and I'm going to show you where that comes from next time. But I want to begin by showing you that this 70th week of Daniel is synonymous with the parousia of Christ, the coming of Christ. Think about the parousia of Christ begins with Christ coming for the church to bring us to heaven. And it's at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. But the parousia of Christ is finished with Jesus returning with the church. So it begins with Christ coming for the church to bring us to heaven. It ends with Christ coming down from heaven with the church to establish his earthly kingdom. That's the parousia. So the parousia is synonymous with the 70th week of Daniel. Yes, Scott. I thought I heard you say that the second three and a half years is the Great Tribulation as opposed to the whole seven years. Exactly. Oh. Yep. And, yeah, and sometimes that last three and a half years is referred to as the time of Jacob's distress. The first three and a half years are relatively easy on Israel because Antichrist and the, the warfare that's going around the whole world, it's affecting the whole world, but it's the last three and a half years that are particularly difficult for Israel. Yep. Yeah, Bob. Another way of describing that is to say it's a composite event. Exactly. The Bible will describe an event, especially in prophecy, like the first advent. Yes. Or the when Christ comes. Yeah. But as a matter of fact, it includes the virgin birth. Exactly. His temptation, the sinless life, all right. of Right, all the events, exactly. That doesn't right. mean it happened in one moment and that's it. Right. So you could call it a composite event. Exactly. This rightly spoken of as an event. Exactly right. In fact, um, I'm glad you brought that up. We'll, we'll turn to some passages next time that we get into this where I'll show you evidence that the parousia is a complex of days. The reason why is just jot these passages down. Matthew 24, 37 and Luke 17, 26. They're identical except a change. There's, in Matthew 24, 37, the term parousia is used. But in Luke 17, 26, the term for coming or parousia 
is taken out, and instead Luke uses the days plural of the Son of Man. So notice the parousia is synonymous then with days plural. It's not just a one-day event. It's a composite event, just as Bob said. So we'll get into that. But the other thing I want you to see is that what is synonymous with this time period is what's called the day of the Lord. Now notice I refer to it as the broad day of the Lord. It begins with the 70th week of Daniel, but it extends all the way into eternity. Okay, The day of the Lord is a time in which God saves his people and judges his enemies. And realize this ends up being an eternal matter, but it begins at the 70th week of Daniel. Now, how do we know that the day of the Lord extends all the way into eternity? Well, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Peter 3.10. And I need a reader. I didn't put the verse down myself. Um, In fact, Eric, if you have it back there. Sure. Computer 3.10? Yes. Okay. Okay, uh, I've got it right here. Second Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Well said. Thank you for reading that. So notice the day of the Lord, he says, comes like a thief. So it comes in an unexpected manner. But notice Peter puts in within the day of the Lord the complete destruction of the material universe. What we would say is the getting rid of the old heavens and earth and the getting the new heavens and earth, right? Well, where does that happen in Revelation? It happens in Revelation chapters 20 and 21. So, yeah, Eric. So there, there will be global warming. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Very, very hot, hot. Yeah, very, but it will be God-induced. That's right. That's right. So my point is this, is the 70th week of Daniel, remember in Revelation? Revelation 6 all the way to chapter 19 is the 70th week. Well, when the earth is, remember you have a millennial kingdom that lasts a thousand years. And after that then, the earth is going to be destroyed and there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So realize that's also by Peter thrown in the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord isn't a 24-hour day. It's a broad period of time in which God saves his people once and for all. And he judges his enemies once and for all. So the reason for this slide is simply to show you that Daniel's 70th week is a big deal. And the reason I keep referring to it is because it is synonymous with the parousia of Christ, his coming, and it is the beginning or the inception of the broad day of the Lord. Now, next time, we don't have enough time, but we'll start getting into Daniel's 70th week, and I'll talk about where this term comes from. And so my goal is that when I'm done with it, it's just a few slides you and I will all be on the same page so that if I say the 70th week of Daniel, it'll be old hat to you. You'll say, I know exactly where that comes from. I know exactly what he's talking about because we're going to get our terminology down. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Eric, uh, I just, uh, what you're speaking on right now, kind of the the scripture kind of came to mind. It kind of sums up what you're speaking on. It's uh, Genesis 6, 3, which says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 20 years. Sure. But my point is, like could you say, God will not strive with, with, with us forever. You yeah. know? Like you said, it's, he's as a limit for, for our sin. It's like you said, it's, it's going to... Well said. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna, to, like you said, it's going to be in his nostrils. It's gonna, he's going to put an end to it. That's right. And he said that regarding the flood. There was a cataclysmic worldwide judgment... What happened prior to that judgment coming is the people of God, Noah's family, were removed. The wrath came. Sodom and Gomorrah, the city is going to be destroyed. What happened prior? We have Lot's family. The people of God are removed. So yes, the judgment comes, but prior to the judgment and wrath coming, the people of God are removed and saved. And the wrath comes, you're right, because God can't stand no more. Absolutely. Well said. Yep. And that is an exemplary judgment of what God will do in the future, not in the flood, but now in the fire, the fire to come. Yeah. Well said. So we're out of time. Um, oh, I'm sorry. We got one more question and we'll just end with that. Scott. I'm sorry. The narrow day of the Lord. The narrow day of the Lord, the 24 hour period is the day that Messiah actually comes for, to, to Israel to fight. And I'll explain why there's a slight distinction. You and I use day sometimes the same. We'll talk about the day that my grandpa lived. We're talking more than a 24-hour period. But then we talk about the day that Kennedy was shot. 
We're talking about a 24-hour period. So we use the day the same way. Well, the biblical writers did as well. And we'll talk about that next time. Yeah. But let's close, our, close out in prayer here. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are the most powerful, that you are the high one, that you are the mighty one of Israel, that you are going to come and deliver us from our enemies. Lord, we do thank you that you did take the cup of wrath upon yourself in order to spare us from the wrath to come. We pray, Lord, that as we look into these things, that we would want to be those who live lives that are pleasing to you, that we would all flee from Babylon to your son for the forgiveness of sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.